So there's been a lot of hoo-ha about Montgomery because initially we were afraid about it. But what's happened? Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello everyone and welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, it's Jazz Gulati here. So today I've got Stephen Hudson on the show, we're going to be talking all things about like consent forms, note taking, how not to get sued, the relevance of Montgomery, who the hell is Montgomery? Uh, you'll find out today, uh, like I did, I thought, Mon- Montgomery, I thought Montgomery was a guy, right, it's actually a woman, so there we are. I've noticed that actually a lot of my listeners have started to message me with recommendations for who they think that should come on the show next and I'm absolutely loving it so please if you've got any suggestions for topics I'd love to hear it I've got a good list of speakers coming up and and guests on the show lined up for you but if you think something would be beneficial to to the audience then please come with the suggestions before we dive into the episode I will give you the protrusive dental pearl for today and that is going to be a gift to you guys it is my custom screen for taking a comprehensive examination notes. So for my new patient examination, I try and make it fairly comprehensive. It's not OTT, it's pretty detailed and you know, you can fill in what you want, but basically the, the benefit of a custom screen, if you've never heard of a custom screen, is on Exact, Software of Excellence Exact, you can actually have a way of collecting notes where instead of having to have like a template where you're adding and deleting stuff, I've converted it into like tick boxes and drop downs. So it actually makes it really easy for your nurse to follow what you're doing. And like, for example, molar classification, you can just drop down, click class two, whatever. You can select your sort of incisor classification. You can have the BPE code within the custom screen. You can tick whether a radiograph is grade one, two or three on page two of the custom screen. So basically custom screens are a fantastic way of collecting notes efficiently and also notes of very good quality. So I'm going to share with you my custom screen. The story of how I got to make my custom screen was basically I was a bit poorly last Christmas. Basically, I hate doing nothing, right? So I was in bed. I was super sick. I was like, what the hell could I do? Literally, I couldn't move. So I got my laptop open and I logged into Exact and uh, I was able to you know, bust out four hours and make this custom screen. So I, you know, I worked really hard uh, on this custom screen, but it's not perfect. I realized that. For example, if I could go back in time, when I get some time, the next thing I'm going to add on this custom screen is patient's goals. Patient's goals are so important in treatment planning and I'm always having to add it on somewhere, but I'd like to have a dedicated uh, place. So it's not perfect, but I'm hoping it's going to really improve your note taking. So if you're using software of excellence or exact, then you can download my custom screen and you will probably find a way. I mean, I can't tell you the top of my head how to do it. I'll probably include this in my instructions on the website, how to actually install a custom screen and use it. Maybe like a video. That's a good idea. Actually, I'm going to put a video on about how to install and use this custom screen. So I hope you like it. That is the pearl for you today. So let's join Steve Hudson for today's episode. So Steve Hudson, welcome to Protrusive Dental Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. I wanted to have you on because in and amongst all the episodes I do, for example, you know, the dial technique with Tiff Koreshi, thinking comprehensive, and we're talking about all these techniques and stuff, but none of this is valid or, um, it, you know, it's borderline dangerous if our consent process isn't there. So that's why I'm having you on. I'm going to do a little bit of introduction for you, but I'd like you to do a bit yourself. So, so Steve, I know that you are a sort of author in uh, apocalyptic books, and, and that's what you like to do. You are, I believe, a retired dentist who does a lot of medical legal work. You have a a blog called GDP Resources, which I find very useful, and I'll I'll link that for for my listeners. Can you add to your crappy introduction I've just given you? 
Well, the, the website has changed. It's dental law and ethics now. Okay, brilliant. And uh, yeah, the apocalyptic is mainly zombie fiction. Okay, zombie fiction, that's right, of course. And when did you retire clinically? This year. Oh, congratulations. L- literally this year. Yeah, it's, it's through health, though. Okay, fine. And uh, so, so now, am I right in that you do a fair bit of medical legal work? Well, I think probably for another year, because there's only a certain amount of time you can carry on doing it if you're not practicing. Oh, okay, fair enough. The courts like to think, well, you're not really practicing, so you're not really going to keep current, though. Okay, fair enough. So it's a shame because I think obviously I know for a fact that you're full of a lot of knowledge when it comes to this field. But you know, if that's how it is, so that's exactly what I want to talk to you about. You know, I was going to call you a medical legal expert, but I, you know, I'm scared. This is this current state of affairs, Steve. I'm scared to call you an expert. <laughs> and the reason I'm afraid to call you an expert is um, about a year ago there was a leaflet produced with my photo on it, and it said I'm sort of ex- some sort of expert in this splint I was using at the time, right? And then one of my good friends, my dear friends, I won't name and shame him, but, you know, he was looking out for me. He messaged me saying, look, you know, I think just be careful with that term expert. And, you know, then I reported back to the guy who made the leaflet and, you know, he's not a dentist. And he's like, well, what the hell? If you're not an expert, who is an expert? So, Steve, who the hell's an expert? I have no idea, mate. If, think you're, if you're actually on the specialist register, okay, it might be all right. I, I'm not actually convinced the GDC are that worried with that term. Okay, I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that because look, an expert for me, someone who, you know, I love reading uh, self-development books and that sort of stuff. And what I've gathered is uh, you're an expert if you know, if you're in the top 5% of a population who knows about something. That's, you know, that's why I think. So, for example, compared to a layperson, I'm an expert in dentistry. I'm an expert in composite resin. I'm an expert in a lot of dental things because the layperson wouldn't be. But if, if, if I was to call myself an expert in orthodontics, uh, then, you know, there's a gray line there. Yes, I have a diploma in orthodontics, so maybe I do have a right. But, uh, you know, maybe... You know, you have lots of experience in orthodontics. So, uh, you, know, that, you know, I don't know if it's worth exploring this topic or not. But so you think it's not something worth worrying about too much? I think you have to be careful if it's like um, if there's an official specialist field like restorative. Then I'm going to be very controversial and say who can call themselves an implant expert? I don't think there is an implantology specialty, is there? There isn't. So if I go on someone's website and dentist and say, I am an expert in placing dental implants. Is that cool? Is that kosher? Is that halal? Uh, <laughs> I think what the GDC don't like is you're trying to make yourself sound better than anybody else. I think that's why they don't like using, you know, if you you get your BDS with honours, that's why they don't like using the honours bit. Well, that's BS because, you know, I work really hard to achieve my honours, right? Uh, I know, I don't know, I think I think, I think Cardiff, everyone gets honours, correct me if I'm wrong. But, you know, it, no, I think generally the degree you get is with honours, but I, I might be wrong there, <laughs> I don't know. But um, look, I, I know a lot of dentists work hard to get their honours and, you know, you stick it on because you've been awarded it. But anyway, that's a different topic. Look, Steve, let's dive right in, okay? I want you to tell me who this Montgomery person is and what have they done caused such a massive stir in our profession and and if you can please clarify in terms of in relation to Bolam and if you can make it tangible for the listeners okay well Montgomery was a legal case brought in Scotland it was a woman who was pregnant and because she was diabetic she had a certain risk of giving a natural birth and she wasn't given that the warnings about that risk so what happened she had the birth and that risk materialised in the child Uh, I think the child got some shoulders uh, there was some sort of shoulder dyscosia and so she went to the court to sue because she said if you if i'd been given the risk i would have had a cesarean and the scottish court said no 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 and they, they kept throwing the case out and it wasn't until they went to the supreme court that the judges agreed with her and awarded her quite a large amount of money so there's been a lot of hoo-ha about montgomery because initially we were afraid about it but what's happened is the court take this kind of case law and then they they interpret it themselves and i don't think they've gone down 
the road we were afraid they would. And to, to be honest, all Montgomery has done is brought the legal side of negligence to the same standard as the regulatory side. Because if you look at the standards, the standards are saying this since 2013. You mean the GDC standards, right? Yeah. They've got a whole principle, number three, obtain valid consent. And it's all about you must obtain valid consent before starting treatments. So, so what's changed? You know, make it tangible to dentistry you know, on Monday morning or you know, whenever I go by practice. Because of Montgomery, what do I have to do now to make sure I'm doing things by the book? Is there anything? Any, any specific scenarios? Make it tangible. Well, the Montgomery duty requires patients to be given the choice. So it's, it's not enough to advise of the risks and benefits of a recommended treatment. You must also tell of the risk of any other reasonable alternative. So generally, if you're doing a composite and you give them the risk of the composite, you kind of got to let them know about the, the option of amalgam as well, if we, as long as we can still do amalgam. Now, the challenge arises... So option and the risks of the amalgam as well? Yeah, because it's a, it's a viable treatment. Because because a composite has risks and benefit, and an amalgam has risks and benefit. And, so, and some patients will, will go for the amalgam, believe it or not. It's true, but you know, I, I'm really airing the frustrations of our profession, because where do you draw the line? Because there's about, as Lincoln Harris once taught me, there's about 72 different ways to treat a cavity for example yeah. uh, do I now need to also discuss okay I can also put a sandwich I can put a GIC at the base then put the composite okay and that, that's another way hell I can do an inlay okay so do I need to now discuss inlay that's a viable choice clinically that's a viable choice okay so where do you draw the line this is ridiculous well that's where the, the next bits come in okay <laughs> Montgomery requires a doctor or dentist to take reasonable care to ensure the patient is aware of any material risks involved in any recommended treatment and of any reasonable alternative or variant treatment so it's the reasonable word is what comes in. So it wouldn't be reasonable for you to have to go through the... Because I actually figured out it was 48 ways to fill an occlusal cavity. So <laughs> with all different lines. So it would not be reasonable for you to sit down because the patient wouldn't understand it invariably. Absolutely. So the problem is the only body that can determine what reasonable is, is a court. Yeah? So you should be reasonably aware that the particular patient would like to take significance in it. And that comes through the conversation you have with the patient before treatment. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this Protrusive team and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Okay, so what should that conversation involve to, to make sure we, we get the right feel of the patient? Yeah, so you basically got to make sure the patient is on, on board with you, that you've got rapport. Because if you don't have rapport, you probably shouldn't be treating them. Yeah, if you can tell there's that, that sort of hesitancy, the, the probably don't like you, the conversation's not flowing, you know when the patient's not on your side. Absolutely. Yeah, and you just shouldn't be treating those people. So I'm, I'm going to jump straight to question seven because I made a list of questions to ask you. So we've gone from Montgomery, which is question one. I'm going to go straight to question number seven, which is exactly about the situation. So let's say we've encountered this patient now, okay? And um, for those who listen to the, the basic implant inclusion episode with uh, Ivan from the US, he talks about red flag patients. Yeah. So he's got a system of, you know, you know two yellow cards and red card. And uh, this is he's, he's trained his staff to do this, right? So I have a red flag patient in front of me just from the history that they're giving me. And I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable in doing any treatment for this patient. How can you let them down in a way that is respectful and courteous and uh, within the law? Basically, with experience, you'll find a way to get rid of patients. 
commonly there, there's some tactics employed I'm not endorsing these tactics is uh, quadrupling your fees which I don't think is a really a great strategy <laughs> but um, so, you know it's very tricky yeah I mean things like that quadrupling your fees if you're doing it just because the patient is annoying or might sue what if they take you up on it yeah exactly what if they still, what if they still go ahead with the treatment because they can still complain afterwards and they can still cause problems with payment and they can still complain to the GDC it, it's much better in my opinion and my opinion may well be flawed in, to get that patient to go to another dentist who they might have a better relationship with than to do the treatment but it's having that difficult conversation you know with the patient be like look you know I don't feel I'm the right dentist for you I, I guess that's the only way to do it really I don't you know based on what you said I'd love to help you but I don't feel I am the right sort of a match as a dentist for you it's a, you've got to do it case by case but it's a tricky conversation to have the, the ways I've done it in the past are exactly that just to be honest say I'm not the dentist for you and half the time they went yeah you're right which can be a bit bruising to your ego <laughs> But the other half of the time, they'll ask why. And, and you'll just look at me and I say, well, you know why? Because we're not on board. We're not on the same page. You're going to be better served, most likely, by finding a dentist who's more tuned to you psychologically. Mrs. Smith, I want the best for you. I think I'm not the best dentist for you. And I think that, yeah, fair enough. Honesty is the best policy. And I think that's uh, as best as answer we can possibly get in this sort of question. Yeah. What I've just said is obviously for entertainment purposes only because I, I'm not a lawyer. Yep. I can't give legal advice. Absolutely. Anything I ever say on any of my episodes is for entertain, entertainment purposes only. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the principle one of the GDC standards, it says put patients' interests first. So if you're going to treat this patient and you're going to be able to give them the result they want, you're not doing that. Perfect. Love it. So, I mean, Paddy Lund said it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Paddy Lund's been bashing on about that for years. Yep. Don't treat patients you don't like because they invariably don't like you. Yep. And don't treat patients you can't have a laugh with and something I've said before and it's, it's a good way to, to, to practice actually so next question my friend Steve is consent forms they aren't worth the paper they are signed on what is your advice you know being involved in the medical legal field being the expert <laughs> consent forms you know are, is there a minimum threshold or a procedure for example look I'm being very honest and I'm sort of exposing myself okay I'll, I'll be careful what I say Consent forms are not my favorite things to do in life. Of all the things there are to do in life, consent forms aren't highest priority for me. But I, I know that's certain. Wisdom teeth, always. Oh my gosh. Wisdom teeth, always. Now, can you give me some advice? Can you mentor me in this way that should I be doing consent form for everything? Is there a limit? Photography? What, what's the medical legal take on consent forms? Well, as you said, they're not really worth anything. The, the GDC only get, insist you do them in, in very few circumstances like general aesthetics, sedation, that kind of thing. So, I mean, you can do them, but they're not going to prove anything because you can give them a 27 page treatment plan which they sign and they can turn around and say well I didn't understand what it was I just felt pressured to sign it so again it comes back to the patient you must have the patient on board before you do any treatment now that invariably you then have still have to do the treatment plan because that's a GDC requirement but I wouldn't get too concerned about consent forms to be honest amazing this is music to my ears but you know the type of some dentists are, are very fond of it and you know it doesn't mean you change your practice overnight stop doing it whatever you find a comfortable way to build report and get your patients on board do it that way for me I just look them in the eye and I tell them all the risks and I take my time I show them radiograph yeah. and I as long as I feel we have an understanding and sometimes what I love doing is um, I love quizzing my patients uh, you know I say okay so what did I say the risks were from last time what did I say this and half the time they don't remember but I remind them and I write them my notes yeah. patient quizzed and, and reminded and it's, and patients you know like that they like that interaction I found 
So that's great. So consent forms to your discretion, everyone. They're, you know, they're not really the worth of paper they, you know, they wrote on. So I'm glad you've said that. Anything else you want to add to that before I move to the next question? No, I think that's it. Amazing. Right. So next thing is a children's act. So when a child attends with, because a common scenario, a child attends with uh, their father. There's the whole act about the, the father, if they're not married, must be on the birth certificate, blah, blah. Can you just clarify that scenario? It's actually quite a very complicated piece of law, the Children's Act, because it's all about parental responsibility. And if you give me a second, I might be able to pull something up on my computer. Yeah, go for it, please, because I think this is a a daily scenario for GDPs. And every time a child patient attends with their father, and I feel like I know this stuff, I feel like I know it, but every time I have a doubt in my mind, I just feel... So basically, I feel uncomfortable when a child is there with their father and not with their mother, because I'm not like 100%, you know, medically legally the best way, which is a shame, you know, as, as a someone who's became a father recently myself it's, it's a shame but you know when a mother's there I'm, I'm relaxed when yeah. anyone other than the mother's there with a child I'm on edge a little bit it's also you've got to worry about grandparents bringing oh absolutely which is a common scenario so if you can shed some light on this for our listeners that'd be amazing I think if the pet if the husband and the father is on the birth certificate then they've got parental responsibility I think that's what it is but, the, but then how do you ask yeah I, and I've had to ask before and it's just a terrible thing to ask very insensitive there's also things about children's consent because the child is gillic competence, so then they can consent to treatments, but they can't refuse treatment. It, it, yeah, so generally I would have the parents on board with until the kid's 16, because then the 16 becomes a uh, child becomes a young adult and it gets more, it gets even more complicated. Then I'm still trying to find this thing I'm looking for. No worries, but I'm gonna jump in now. The now a 15-year-old gillic competent patient comes, okay, and they need some teeth whitening. And I don't mean they want teeth whitening. I genuinely mean, Steve, they need teeth whitening. They've got yellow, brown teeth, and they're being bullied at school, okay? And I see this on the dental forums all the time. Oh, I've got a 17-year-old. Oh, I've got a 15-year-old. I've got a 12-year-old patient. And by the letter of the law, you can hack these teeth down for veneers. You can slap on some composite, which is going to need, you know, replacement events for the rest of their life. And I don't care what anyone says, composite veneers. You, they will need maintenance and replacement. So that's all kosher and fine. But then the teeth whitening bit. So what is the medical legal stance? Because I, you know, I hear it banded around that actually, if there is a psychosocial element to it, i.e., the child being bullied, then whitening is allowed. Is that written anywhere? That the problem with that, if if they're below the age of eighteen, there's European law. Yeah. It says you can't do the book. Uh, you can't do the uh, whitening. Hashtag Brexit. Yeah. Well, I, it's probably going to be still in British law for a good while yet, even if we do leave, which I don't think we will. I'm, I'm still, I'm still don't see that happening. <laughs> Because the state's just pushing everything to try and stop Brexit from happening, despite what you hear from the Tory MPs. Yeah. So that's going to be interesting. But in the young person scenario needing whitening, I mean, my stance is this. And again, please, guys, this is for entertainment purposes only. If I have like a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, and I have the parents on board, and I have the child on board, and they genuinely are, like, it's, I haven't encountered this scenario, but if they genuinely are really discolored and the child's being bullied, I would probably do it. Yeah, because you've also got the GDC principle, you've got to do what's in its best interest. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, yeah, it's a whole minefield, but I, this, that's my true thought and I would do that. Yeah, so it's not in the child's best interest to hack their enamel off and rectify their porcelain deficiency. But it's also, it's also, is it in their best interest to do something that's technically legal? It's only a decision the practitioner can make based on their own judgment. And that's going to be based on the, on the relationship you have with the patient and the parent. Because again, if they like you, 
and the whitening goes well, you're unlikely to have any problems. It's true. So again, there's a whole report thing again with the parents and the child. So it always goes back full circle. But I actually know a good friend of mine, restorative dentist, a fantastic clinician. I won't name them just because I don't know if I didn't really agree to this. But in the one or two times they've had to do this exact scenario, because it's a referral practice and they get referred these sort of cases, he or she has actually written to the the child and, and the parents to and explicitly written in the letter, I will be carrying out illegal tooth whitening on you. This is illegal. Yeah. <laughs> in the letter. And it's, everything's like really transparent. I can tell you what the DDU say. Yes, please. So it says, under the law, patients must be aged 18 or over. Or Although the GDC makes an exception for whitening the teeth of under 18s when used wholly for the purpose of treating or preventing disease, the DDU cannot envisage any circumstances where this might be the case. Our legal advice is that there are no exceptions to the rule and all patients must be aged 18 or over. Wow, that is very strongly worded. So there you go. So EDU says no, not in any circumstance because they can't envisage that scenario. But what is the definition of disease? You know, once again, you know, it's completely ignoring the mental side of it, which I think, I'm sorry, DDU, but I don't like that. Yes, well, I can't comment on the DDU. <laughs> I'd like to. <laughs> yeah, I think we'd all like to, but uh, let's not go there. Okay, so we've talked a bit about the uh, whitening to your discretion. I know some people who would, some people who, who wouldn't, but, you know, that's to your discretion and it is what it is until the law changes. So next question is... There's an extraction that's booked in. The tooth is grade two mobile. It's a new patient to you. The diagnosis, whatever the diagnosis is, the tooth needs to be extracted. And you, you and the patient have come to terms with this. I would take a PA because make a medical legal world we live in. Even though in Sheffield, the way I was trained was actually, you know, come on, you know, the, the tooth yeah. has two roots. You know, as you know, you don't really need a PA. But nowadays, I don't know a single clinician nowadays where we're out, you know, in, in practicing who wouldn't take a PA in that scenario. So a- any comment on taking PAs prior to XLAs? I think you'd take a PA. I think that's that's the way to do it now. Personally, I would also do a PA. Fine. So it is what it is, you know, take a PA, everyone. You're going to get some, very rarely you're going to get some bizarre apical pathology that makes you go, Ooh, what's that? You know, some, I mean, it's like one in a million kind of thing. Some bizarre squamous cell carcinoma or whatever. Don't ask me about all pathology. I'm... <laughs> but I think you're right. I know one or two times I've heard dentists talk about what they discovered on a on a, on a radiograph. So, yeah. Yeah, I think in, in this current affairs, yeah. It's like with perio. I mean, you have to do your, your perio equals perio. It's like, yeah, okay. Yep, it's true. I'm not, not convinced I really need to, but that's what the, the regulation states. Cool. Everyone, please take some PAs prior to XLA. Sorry, but that's how it is. And next I think, one I think, is... I, I, think it, yeah. I think if it's an upper one that's literally wafting in the breeze when, when they breathe in and out, yeah. you're probably going to be all right with that to not do a PA. But don't quote me on it. Yeah, of course not. But you know what I do in that scenario? I'd get my intro camera out and I'd take three photos of that tooth in extreme buckle position, in middle position, and extreme lingual position, just so it's like crystal clear. <laughs> the, sort of, the degree of mobility... <laughs> I think that what you've highlighted actually is there's no proper guidance. There's no, this is how you should do it, written down on a piece of paper somewhere. Everything's a bit vague. It's a bit wishy-washy. And there's a reason for that because dentistry is, isn't the kind of thing you can have set rules for. But the, the drawback is everything's open to interpretation. And when it's open to interpretation, then you get some fancy lawyer up on the stand 
who's got his interpretation that it might sound completely wacky, but if a judge goes for it, then yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a, both a blessing and a curse in dentistry that everything is obviously yeah. open to interpretation. But there are, there are upsides to that as well, obviously, because you can you know justify and argue and that sort of stuff. So so that's cool. Uh, next question is, uh, I used to work with a male nurse, right? And, and I'm terribly sorry to my listeners if I have said this story before, but it's a funny one. So listen now. So I used to work with a male nurse, right? Uh, and he was uh, taller than me, broader than me. And uh, he was a seat guy and he had a bigger turban than me, right? So uh, it's in private practice and I know he's listening to this probably right now and I'm just trying to say, hey, Chantaj, I hope you're doing well. And anyway, so he's actually a dentist in India and now he's just done his ORE and stuff. So a patient okay. comes in, fem- female patient. Okay, and obviously he's my nurse and uh, I'm the dentist. And, and quite a lot of times the patient would assume that he's the dentist because he's got you know a bigger turban and stuff yeah. and more authority and stuff, which was always a, a funny scenario. And the other funny thing was um, when I'd be sort of leaning in with the mirror and the handpiece and he'd be leaning in with the suction, our turbans would clash which is like a, a completely like unprecedented scenario in, in, in clinical dentistry in the UK, I imagine. So that, that was, that's my funny story done. But okay, in this scenario, uh, I feel in this current climate, two male nurses, female patient, that's a no-go. I think you might be right. Yeah. I can't quote you the law on it, and people will say that there's no problem. But the climate is so fear-driven now that... I think you have to have a, if there's a female patient, you have to have a female in the room. Chaperone. But yeah, but then that brings in all the other issues about transgender and all the different other genders that are now coming out. <laughs> it, it's a minefield. It really is. And, you know, so that, you know, women want equality and, you know, I'm a big fan of equality and stuff. But what about mm, the scenario totally. when you have a, a female dentist, a female nurse and a male patient? I know it's, it sounds stupid, but, you know, how is that different, really, if you want equality? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> no, it's, 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 I, I it's actually... I things like that. A, a stupid rhetorical question anyway so fine so next question thank you for that uh, was so you're allowed to make a recommendation uh, you know, under the GDC you are allowed to you should make a recommendation to your patient which I think is a, a very sometimes a forgotten point and it's a, it's a useful thing to have uh, when you're explaining to patients that you're you know you're allowed to recommend a treatment uh, option and then when the patient says no and they're completely within their right to, to refuse treatment for, for any reason what, what do you recommend us GDPs do when a patient you know they need an extraction and you've or, or they need a splint even and this you know you've come to the conclusion that that's what's going to be the most appropriate thing for their health, for the prevention or whatever. So, and the patient declines. It, it just, all you have to do is just write it in the notes. Okay, patient declined uh, and risks warned. Is that as much as we need to do? And Or should we get in writing? So that's the sort of direction I want to explore with you. Well, basically, you, you explain to the patient why you recommend the treatment, the benefits of the treatment and the risks of not having, and the risks of the treatment, and also the benefits of not having the treatment and the risks of not having the treatment. And then you record that in the clinical notes. Because the patient has a right to make what we might think is foolish decisions because it's their body. And obviously, they'll then turn up at half past five on a Friday before Christmas. But yeah, just let them decide for their own. And then when it then eventually happens that the face blows up on the middle of the transatlantic flight or whatever, mm-hmm. then, you've, then you've been seen to be the wise dentist warning them this might happen. Mm-hmm. And, as, and as long as you've got the rapport and the, the, the relationship with the patient where they trust you, yeah, then it shouldn't come back and bite. And even if it does, you've got you've you've told them and you've recorded it in the note that you've warned them, and it was their decision not to go ahead. Yeah, the, this is always a, a tough thing. It's a tough thing for all dentists, but um, I used to almost get like a flight or fight response inside me when, like for example, you know, oh, you're just gonna need two bite wing X-rays or te- you need two X-rays, you know, routine X-rays, and if the patient would refuse, and then I'm like, oh my god, I mean, this is it becomes confrontation sometimes yeah. so what I've adopted now is just don't make the patient's problem your problem firstly okay 
okay? Relax. And I just smile and you know, I'm really, you know, I try and be real with them. I say, look, I totally respect that. Look, I respect your decision. Just so agree with them, respect. I respect that. The main reason why we do it is because, you know, you might have holes between your teeth and I can't see them with my eyes. And uh, this is why we take those x-rays. If you're cool with it, I'm cool with it. As long as you know, there might be some holes. Is that right with you, Mrs. Smith? And I really say it in that tone and that really lightens the mood because, you know, there's no point. Ha- Once they've made up their mind, mm. okay, they're not having it and they've got their preconceptions or whatever. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, I didn't realize that. I'll have the x-rays then. But you've done your bit and you've done it in a non-confrontational, non-judgmental manner. And I think that's the most important way to do it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And, and one, yeah, one thing that David Winkler taught me, you know, I used to work with him, he, patients who need extractions and, you know, they because the tooth's going to blow up, okay? He just smiles at them and says, just don't call me on Christmas Eve. Just don't call me on Christmas Eve, you know? And the patients get the point. I love that. You know, it's, it's so straight and real. Uh, so that's a great communication tip. Just smile. Like, yeah, that's fine, Mr. Smith, but just don't call me on Christmas Eve. And they, they sort of get it. So that that's my nugget there shared. So uh, Steve, those are the questions I had for you. Tell me, is there anything else that you'd like to mention that the microphone is yours to GDPs? Mostly, you know, I'd say 80% of my listeners, young dentists between the age of, you know, 25 and, and 45. So any, anything you want to send out to them? Don't be afraid of Montgomery. What we're seeing is since it's been brought in, is that the court are kind of feeling their way with it. And they're generally going down a more sensible road than we considered they would. I think, that if I remember, there have been two legal cases recently. I think it was A versus East Kent Hospitals, University, NHS Foundation Trust, and Tasman versus Bar. And both those cases, the, the case was thrown out because the risk patient was complaining about that they weren't warned about was was considered immaterial it was too small so it, it was some really rare thing and it, it was the risks of it happening were less than one in a thousand so generally there is this it's not set in stone and the courts might turn away and go down a different route but i think if the risk is less than one in a thousand it's not classed as material which means you probably don't have to warn them about it that's interesting there's three kinds of risks. There's the general risks. So, you know, you do an injection, you're going to be numb. That's a general risk. There's treatment-specific risks. So you can take out an upper six and the root can go in the antrum, yeah? But there's also patient-specific risks. And that's that's where the grey area is. It's a rare risk that might be relevant to a specific person based on their, their lifestyle. Right. So a, a trumpet player might consider the risks of paresthesia for a lower lip more uh, relevant than, say, someone who works in a factory. Even though the risk might be again one in a thousand whatever yeah it's it, it becomes more pertinent for them because it's because it, if they have paresthesia they might not be able to play the trumpet and that's their life that's their livelihood gone so the message there is have that report because you would have no idea about the trumpet playing if you didn't already have report built in and a social history yeah so that's where the conversation the chat comes in that that will then come out hopefully because when you mentioned that about the one in a thousand i was thinking well hang on a minute oral bisphosphonates the risk of you having you know bronze from a tooth extraction on someone who's you know on oral, you know, anhydronic acid or whatever without any steroids, non-smoker, that sort of stuff is like one in 10,000 to one in 100,000. But you're right, that's a very patient-specific risk and, you know, you should discuss that with your patient. And we shouldn't even be the ones warning them about that. It should be the, it should be the medic. Yeah, it's true. And so many times the patients have no idea. Or maybe, you know, maybe the medics have told them they just forgot. Who knows? No, the, the medics <laughs> generally don't tell them. I mean, I've, I've had a fair bit of interaction with the medical profession the last few few years and their, their consent processes are woefully inadequate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've had some medical procedures and the way they've gone through stuff with me and I'm, and I'm there saying like, whoa, this is consent? Yeah, it, but the thing is, litigation side, because the patients don't pay, there is this, for, for medicine, there is this presumed lack of 
need for all this. But if you look at the NHS, it put a huge sum of money aside for future litigation. I think it's something like 60 billion. It's, it's a crazy amount of money. It's just sat there to fight off future litigation because the, the lawyers are really getting clued up on this. And so are the patients. Patients are realising now that negligence can be a good way of earning a little a fair crust. Yeah, it's a very sorry state of affairs. But patients won't sue you if they like you. That, that's the thing. There's been study after study that shows that if the patient likes you, they won't sue you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've read the, the book Blink. Yeah, I've read Blink, yep. Yeah, yeah there's a, the whole chapter in, in, it, in that book about that. I've also read uh, your book, The Dentist Survival Guide. Oh, thank you very much. There was that chapter, oh gosh, is it by Amin Armenian? Is that right? Yeah. Fantastic, really. And it, it was that book, wasn't it? Dentist Survival Guide? Yeah. Or was it Masters? Message from Masters. Which one was it? No, it's Dentist Survival Guide. Okay, so what I loved about his bit, and it's worth mentioning here, is that if you do two, of, and correct me if I, if I recall this wrong, Steve, if you do two of the following three things right, your patient probably won't sue you, okay? So A, if you're nice to the patient and have rapport. B, if you do the correct treatment plan and C, if you do the treatment plan well. So for example, you could be nice to the patient and you can do some really good treatment, but maybe it wasn't the most appropriate treatment, then you'd probably still be fine. Or uh, you could, you know, do some the correct treatment plan Okay, it's not um, look doesn't look amazing or whatever, but the patient likes you. You still also also be fine. So I really like that way of thinking about it. Yeah, the problem is no matter what you do, there's always going to be that risk. There's always going to be the the patient that can slip through the whatever systems you put in place. So you just have to keep good notes. Uh, and again, there's the other thing. I mean, where's the guidance on how to write notes? I'm hoping you write a book on that, mate. Well, there's this. I mean, if you remember uh, dental tube, I, I got some guys from dental tubules, and we did the um, examination. What to write for examinations? What to write for a procedures oh yeah 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 which which is given away free on my website just thought i'd mention that no no absolutely i'll link everyone as well because this is you know people always like you know quote unquote templates and whatnot because it really helps you as, as a signpost to to make sure that you're consistently recording notes at a high standard yeah because there's guidance from the faculty of general dental practitioners on what to write for examinations there's guidance from the Paris society on what to write for perinatal treatments and the, there is a little bit of guidance i'm not i don't know how it can be called guidance but it's the only thing we've got it's um a position paper from the european endodontic society or something which i think that's now classed as what you should record when you're doing endodontic treatment mm. but, but apart from that i can't really find anything for mos mineral surgery like taking teeth out what you should record obviously there's going to the um implant societies will have guidance for what to record when you're doing implants i know um you know pav don't you kyra yeah he's got a website i believe my implant plan yes which has everything you need to record and everything you need to tell the patients brilliant which which is very good and that's free as well i think wow i didn't know it's free i, I will contact pav and with i'm sure he'd be fine with me sharing that with uh, our listeners because anything to help everyone would be would be good so thanks for raising that yeah, just record everything. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Get your nurse to do it. While you're having a conversation with the patient, your nurse could be typing away. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, so my nurses, I try and train them as much as possible that when I'm done with my patient, there should literally be like, you know, like a transcript, like Jazz said yeah. this, patient said this. So yeah, fair enough. Some nurses are best than others, but hey, there's this um, service. I've seen an advert for it. It's like, um, I don't know, Heroku or something it's called. It's where apparently it's like an Amazon Echo that's listening to your conversation mm-hmm. and like con- converting it to notes 
notes and stuff. Let's say if anyone's got experience with that and wants to give us feedback on how that's going, please let us know because that's, you know, anything that can help everyone record notes better, faster, quicker, that sort of stuff. So that's interesting as well. Yeah, we're going to have huge databases of patient conversations in the future. We're going to need a whole server farms full of these. Now, I don't think we need to go to that level. I think just because if it's in the note, the court will generally say that's what's happened. The problem is you can't rely on templates because I've actually seen this in legal cases where you've got the notes and it's the notes of Mr. Smith and halfway through the record of that day, patient warned about pregnancy. Yeah. So it's been cut and pasted and they've not actually read through. Your notes can have a certain degree of templates applied to them, but they still have to be bespoke. This is why I like custom screens. Are you familiar with custom screens? I try and avoid uh, computers as much as possible. <laughs> you are so old school. No, Steve, custom screens are amazing. And this is actually giving me a really good idea. Uh, I use a really good custom screen, which I made myself on SOE. And I'll try and sort of um, share that with everyone. It's like, so in a custom screen, you're actually ticking things and you're uh, drop down menu, select things. So you're never sort of writing or using like a template. You have to actually manually choose something, which means that you would have had mm. to go through it. So yes. I, I love that. And I think that is yeah, a that bit more, you know, medically legally proof if you like. Yeah, I think that's very good. The only thing that makes me pause is how that looks when it's printed out onto paper. True, I've never tried. That's a great point, actually. Uh, worst case scenario, that... you could just open up exact and, you know, it's all there. And you just bloody take a screenshot. Yeah, because Simon Thackeray did his um, LLM, his law masters, and his dissertation was on bias in expert witnesses. And he found that expert witnesses are invariably biased, if I remember. And one of the things that occurs to me, if you've got notes that are hard to read, Let's say, let, for, let's make it easy. You've got handwritten notes and you've done spider scroll. If you give that to an expert witness, he or she is going to be like, I've got to work with this. So yeah. the, the expert is already against you because you've made it difficult for them. If you've got good notes with everything, then the, it's going to be easy for them. And that bias might slip in your favor. It's just a thought that just occurred to me. No, no, it's true. So make sure your notes are clear and legible because if, if shit hits the fan, excuse my French, then they want to be able to read your notes. <laughs> I mean, I, I teach dental students and they do like to write their magnum opus every time they see a patient. It's like, I say hello to patient, da, 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 da. It's like, you don't need to go to that level. No. But if you do want to go to that level, then at the end of it, just do bullet points of what what, what the actual treatment was. So you can you can skip all that and you can, okay, that's what's actually been done. So the notes have to fulfill the benefit to you so that when you actually go back next time and you look, you know, you don't have to read through all that stuff. So yeah, that's a good point. You know, have your main notes and have a little summary to help you. So Steve, um, I think that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I will share your law and ethics uh, website. So, because I know it's got a lot of helpful resources, the templates that you mentioned. I'll, I'll reach out to Pav. I'm sure he'll be happy for me to put uh, my implant plan out there i'll try and get a exportable version or importable version if you like of my soe uh, exact template which i think is a uh, pretty good and uh so thank you for covering really pertinent key points which actually confuse dentists uh and finally i realized that montgomery is a woman and it wasn't a man so thank you thank you very much guys for listening all the way to the end i really appreciate it I hope you like my custom screen, so I'll make it available to download on my website. It'll be on www.jazz.dental forward slash custom screen. That's all one word, custom screen. So there you'll be able to download the custom screen. It'll also be on my normal under the sort of the blog post for this episode. I hope you find it useful. Give me some feedback, see what you think. And if you guys have got, like if you, if you guys in the protrusive community have got good custom screens and you want to share them with everyone, please. Send them to me and I'll happily like make a, make a page on a website so we can all share our custom screens because, look, if we can all help each other record better notes more efficiently, then that'd be amazing. Apologies if you're an R4, though. I realize that I haven't really given you guys anything. Sorry.
Once again, thanks for staying at the end, and next episode will be with Jason Smithson. We're talking Emacs onlays and Vertipreps, Virtual Crowns, which is a really, really good episode. We're obviously pre-recorded. Uh, we'll be launching that soon. Tickets for Occlusion 2020 are pretty much almost sold out, so hence why I'm not really promoting it that much anymore. You can, you've seen a massive drop in the ads I'm running on Facebook. So thanks so much for those who've booked, and I'm looking, I'm, we're so stoked for May. It's going to be the best Occlusion event ever, so we'll see you then.